As you're probably all very well aware, the long-anticipated film, The Passion of the Christ, opened in theaters across the nation this past Wednesday. Focusing primarily on the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, this film provides the most graphic portrayal of Christ's sufferings in history. The gruesome death of Jesus has been pictured on film before, undoubtedly, and portrayed for centuries in various passion plays, but never has his death been so real to viewers as now, excepting, of course, those who were there to see the real event. One evangelical reporter said concerning this film, I quote, The passion makes for powerful, emotionally wrenching viewing. It is brutally, unrelentingly violent. Reports of the film's unflinching depiction of Christ's sufferings have not been exaggerated, and the film is well deserving of its R rating. But as we have discussed here ourselves as a church, it is devoid of any explanation of the meaning of Christ's suffering. Viewers are going to have to draw on previous understanding in order to make any sense of the brutality that they view on the screen. And this will put some people who are unfamiliar with the gospel at a distinct disadvantage. Case in point, David Anson, a journalist and self-described secularist non-believer, in his own words. In a review, Anson characterized the movie as quote, relentlessly savage and reported, I quote his words, I found myself recoiling from the movie, wanting to keep it at arm's length. And he then likened it to watching a rape. Anson could find no meaning or purpose in the film, and so he went so far as to charge the producer Mel Gibson with sadism. That is, finding evil pleasure in the sufferings of others. As far as he was concerned, that was the only point of the film, was sadism. He ended his article with these words. And as I read them, I understand. And I feel compassion for the man when he says, I felt abused by a filmmaker intent on punishing an audience for who knows what sins. It was Gibson's fury, not his faith, that left a deep, abiding aftertaste. What is probably more intriguing to me than this article from this unbeliever is the title to the article, which was this. So what's the good news? So what's the good news? What Anson and other unbelievers will see in this film is, in Anson's words, I quote again, flayed, severed, swollen, scarred flesh and rivulets of spilled blood, the crack of bashed bones and the groans of someone enduring the ultimate physical agony. And so they will ask, what's the good news in that? What indeed? No believer could see any honest depiction of Christ's death or read any honest depiction of Christ's death and not be horrified by the suffering and the tragedy of that execution. But undergirding that emotional effect of Christ's death for us who believe, there are two realities 
that transformed that event from sadism to good news, from joy and simple suffering to actually good news. We could add many to these realities, but I think they are very prominent. First of all, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the foundation under which we view such a, an event, whether we read of it or see it depicted or watch it in a play. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His horrifying death was overwhelmed by His glorious triumph over death. Secondly, Jesus Christ died for a specific and glorious reason. My heart aches. It aches for the David Ansons of this world who do not realize any good news in the death of Jesus Christ. We gather around this table this morning because we know that the blood of Jesus was shed for sinners. Very rarely, says the Apostle Paul, will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We pause this morning to commemorate the sacrificial death of the sinless Lamb of God who laid down His life in order to free sinners from the miseries of sin and the damnation of the second death. And as we do this, we commune with God in this good news. And we commune together with other brothers and sisters in Christ who have entered this communion with Jesus. This is not an obsession with one man's death, period. This is a coming to terms with the very center of human history. So having gathered together in the name of Jesus, having gathered as those rescued from sin, let's remember that the Word of God teaches us about this event and in fact instructs us as to how we are to read it and to see it. It teaches us concerning the meaning of Jesus' suffering. As you contemplate the torturous death of Jesus in your mind's eye, what meaning do you attach with that event? As this author has done, he attached the meaning of sadism, simple enjoyment of suffering. What meaning do you attach to it? Let's turn again to familiar words in 1 Peter chapter 2 as we prepare our minds to receive the Lord's Supper and to commemorate His death in this way as He draws from Isaiah 53. And you might want to make your way there as well as we will linger there in just a few moments. Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Why did Jesus suffer? One of the most succinct and powerful answers we find here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, where we read, He committed no sin. No deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We learn here in verse 24 that Jesus physically bore the punishment of our sin. He physically bore the punishment of our sin. There's a theological truth here, first of all, that we note in verse 24. As we focus there, He died as our sacrificial substitute. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. There are two contextual considerations here which we must uh, concentrate on. And I'll take you another place here to Leviticus chapter 1. But we, got, we must consider the sacrificial system. If you'd like to turn there to Leviticus chapter 1 as we consider the background of what Peter is saying. That doesn't hit us as directly as it might hit those who are in a context of sacrificial worship. But let's look back to the Mosaic law and to the instruction that we find there in Leviticus chapter 1 concerning animal sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Now notice this verse 4. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. That is to provide covering for sin. Now let's go to Leviticus 16, a little further into the instruction here. And we find help, helpful description of the meaning of placing one's hand on the head of the sacrificial animal. Why do this? It's made very clear here in a context where the animal in fact is not actually slaughtered but it is applicable to the slaughter of animals, to all animal sacrifice. Here we're dealing with the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year. It is a ceremony in which the Israelites deal with their sin individually and corporately. Now here in Leviticus chapter 16, we read this instruction concerning priests at verse 20. Leviticus 16 verse 20. When Aaron was finished making atonement for the most holy place the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. So we see very clearly here, particularly in verse 21, that as hands are laid upon the goat, that the sin of the people is in a sense transferred to the goat. Now this is an imperfect system. In fact, it doesn't work, and that's one reason why the Day of Atonement comes once a year and not once forever. 
It came year after year to where this ritual was followed of placing hands upon this live goat, confessing the rebellion of Israel, the wickedness of Israel against God. And as it says there, put them on the goat's head, he shall send it away. The goat will carry on itself all their sins. This is the context. Now as we go back to 1 Peter, I'm sending you all over the place here, but back to 1 Peter. Let's consider again verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body. Israel has been instructed to understand this transfer of sin onto a designated body who takes the penalty of sin. We might use in parallel in our culture a handshake. A handshake sends a message, doesn't it? It means something. It might say that it might be a symbol of agreement. We are saying together that we agree. Now that handshake, of course, is not agreement itself, but it is a symbol of saying we agree together. Or it may be a symbol of saying uh, of welcome or friendship and, and, and saying uh, to the other individual that we are one in, in some respect. In like manner, this hands on the head of the animal, the sacrificial lamb or goat, was a symbol of identification. And when a lamb was sacrificed, as in the first chapter of Leviticus that we read, that lamb was pictured as dying in the place of the sinner, as in fact bearing the sinner's sin for the sinner and dying the penalty of that sin in the sinner's place. The sacrificial context is clearly foundational then to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 when he says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body. He who, verse 22, committed no sin, bore our sins. Just as sacrificial lambs are not the sinner, so Jesus Christ was the sinless lamb who paid the penalty of our sin, not his own. As John put it in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He bore our sin. I'd like us here to turn back to Isaiah 53 as we consider that idea, that he bore our sin. We've seen light from the Mosaic Law, from the book of Leviticus, helping us understand the idea of transfer, of one bearing the sin of others. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 and notice verse 4. For I believe this is what Peter has in mind. This is the passage that he's drawing from as he draws these words. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The prophet here is referring, of course, to this servant of God who will come, this prophesied Savior. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Notice verse 10. We find down there the phrase, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, here is that individual taking the place of the sacrificial lamb in the Mosaic system. Jesus bore then, and let me also note there verse 12, Down at the middle of verse 12, it says, Because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many. 
and made intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. So as we look at this prophetic announcement, Peter is clearly seeing Jesus Christ here as the fulfillment of this servant who will bear the sins of many. Bearing these sins in his body on the tree, Peter says. This means that our sin was counted against Jesus. Let's make it very personal here. My sin, your sin, was counted against Jesus. He paid the death penalty. As the apostle put it, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And the place where Jesus made this payment was where? 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, on the tree. I think that's more than simply a location point. It speaks of his death, but why say tree and not cross? This is where Jesus died. He died on the tree. Why say tree and not cross? It seems to draw attention to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, where in that context, the law is dealing with capital offense, and it says that one who has blasphemed God should be hung on a tree. Anyone, it says, who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul noted this very point when he quotes Deuteronomy 21.23, arguing that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Deuteronomy 21.23. So we see this theological truth. Jesus died as our substitutionary sacrifice to provide forgiveness for our sins. We see a practical result. Secondly, He died to free us to live righteously. Verse 24, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. Sacrificial substitution. So that we might live to sins, that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. The so that there is the reason why Jesus died in our place. This is one of the reasons that he suffered on the cross. That we might die to sins, or as the original text reads, that having died to these sins, we might put it this way He bore these sins of us, so that having died to these sins of us, which Jesus bore on the cross, we might live to the righteousness. Righteousness is never a free-floating concept, is it? Righteousness, all righteousness, reflects the character of the God who determines the standards by which righteousness is determined. This is why righteousness to the pagan gods leads people into sin. But the righteousness of our God leads to, to purity. So Jesus bears our sin. We die to our sin in Him. Jesus gives us His righteousness, and we live then in that righteousness. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. He died for us. We live for Him. Or as Paul put it to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. May I never boast, he says to them later in the, in the book, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Why this obsession with the death of Jesus? 
on the part of Christians. I don't know if it's an obsession with death, but it is a boasting in death. May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, says Paul. When we see depictions of the death of Christ, more importantly, when we read of the death of Jesus Christ in His written Word, this is a place of glory, not of sadism. Why did Jesus die? He died so that we, united spiritually with Him in His sacrifice, might die to our sin and be spiritually resurrected to live as He lived. Jesus physically bore the punishment of our sins. He physically bore the punishment of our sins. Let that truth filter in. If you're younger, perhaps you have not come to Christ as Savior or with us here today, perhaps you are coming to understand the Bible and don't know much about it. We go through this passage often, far more often than I realized as I look back on our record. But this is one text of Scripture that I hope we never forget as a church. And young people, that you can put your finger on these verses and say, this is at the heart of what the Bible teaches. That Jesus physically bore the punishment of our sin. I hope that we can grow as a church, that our young people can grow past simply saying that I had an experience I ask Jesus into my heart, but that we can say, and as glorious as that is, but that we could say with more fuller realization and conviction that that man bore my sin on his body and paid my penalty. And I believe. Jesus physically bore the punishment of our sins. Think of it. And here's why this is so glorious. The end of verse 24, which I think should go with verse 25 in the text as far as verse division. Jesus, secondly, spiritually healed our wayward souls. He spiritually healed our wayward souls. It says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24 at the end, "...by His wounds you have been healed." Now, I take that with verse 25 because you see that verse 25 starts with the word for. And it is giving an explanation, I believe, to the entire idea of preceding verses, but most specifically to this last phrase. By his wounds you have been healed. What does that mean? For, here's the explanation. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's stop there for just a moment. The Greek word refers to the discolored swelling of a body left by, say, a, a fist or a whip. It more specifically refers to a bruise which begins to bleed, and it very ably pictures the suffering of Jesus Christ. By His bleeding wounds, you have been healed. Those who have come to believe and to trust have found healing in those wounds. What kind of healing does Peter have in mind? He does not say, does he, by his wounds you have been healed and therefore you will never get sick. By his wounds you have been healed, therefore, here's the conclusion, if you trust by faith you will never have illness again. Or just a few sniffles here and there. 
That's not at all what the text says, is it? By his wounds you have been healed for. He explains now what he means in verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray. Peter uses what seems to be an entirely different metaphor in verse 25, which indicates that verse 24 is also to be taken figuratively. Does that make sense? If he meant in verse 20, if he meant verse 24 to be taken literally, by his wounds you have been healed physically of all of your illnesses, then he would have explained that in verse 25. But in fact, he launches into a completely different metaphor. You are like sheep. Now they're related metaphors. I will say, but you are like sheep going astray. We don't take that literally. We are our sheep spiritually. And so we have been healed spiritually. Peter uses what seems to be an entirely different metaphor, saying that we have gone astray. Now this phrase in the Greek indicates that we have habitually, consistently, actively wandered away from God. So Peter is drawing from what? He's drawing again from Isaiah 53. Let's go back there. And I'd like you to concentrate particularly on verse 6. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. Peter just keeps drawing us back to this prophecy. It says here, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I'd like to sense for us as a congregation to sense this this morning and in a unique way, some of you have. Some of you, like me, have wept when you have heard Handel's Messiah at this place. Some of you don't have two seconds for Handel's Messiah because you've not yet developed taste. Talk to me and I'll work on you. I had to develop this taste. Believe me, it was a mature choice. But I'd like us to consider the strains of Handel's Messiah at this place and listen to how the music develops this text. It's profound. This is great art as he develops this. You might keep this verse right in front of you here as he develops two themes out of Isaiah 53 and verse 6. And I want us to think of it not simply as critiquing the music but to think of it in our own lives, in our own experience, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. Now listen how Handel develops that theme and then contrasts it with the later theme.
back up just a little with not playing it, but anybody weeping? The beautiful depiction, you can see the sheep running over the field. Nobody's weeping. This is fun, right? You see the sheep running away from the shepherd out of this glorious field, just having the time of their life. We've turned everyone to his own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. It's happy and exciting and joyous to be running free away from our shepherd. Now this is where he turns and takes that light-hearted music and brings us to the second part of verse 6. too far to try to picture exactly, but it's almost like the sheep having this great time and running away, turn the bend, and there's the shepherd dead. Having had to take on the enemy of sin. As we as sheep turn that bend in the road, having gone astray and turning to our own way, we stop at the foot of the cross and there we see the Savior crucified for us. But what great truth Peter reveals here as he says, we have returned. We like sheep have gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You have returned indicates a decisive action. It's not returned in the sense that you have come back to be saved again, certainly. But it's turned in the sense of the way, way the word is used often in the Greek New Testament of conforming or converting or turning back. As 1 Thessalonians 1.9 would depict it, the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. And that is the idea here. We turn to our own way, but now we have come back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Two names here for God the shepherd and also the overseer. The shepherd theme is a common metaphor for how God relates to His people. Isaiah 40 and verse 11, He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms. 
And Jesus, of course, said, I am the true shepherd. I am the good shepherd in John 10. We are all vulnerable sheep who need a soul shepherd. We are ever susceptible to spiritual danger. We struggle to handle rugged terrain. We need someone to lead us to spiritual food and water. We are hopeless against spiritual predators and thieves. And we so happily skip away from our shepherd and go astray. And we risk death. But Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, laid down his life to rescue us and to return us to the shepherd of our souls. Our shepherd, our bishop, the word means guardian or overseer, one who assures that all is happening in right order. We need such a spiritual guide, and Jesus is that guide. He is the good shepherd. What a terrible ordeal Jesus suffered on the cross. But it is when we hear the wonder of these words, when we hear that his ordeal was intended to rescue our souls, it is then and only then that we can view the cross as good news. People like David Anson, who simply view the physical event, see nothing redeeming in Christ's death. They see only, to use his words again, flayed, severed, swollen, scarred flesh, and rivulets of spilled blood. They do not see that hanging on that cross and suffering the misery of separation from the Father is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed to free sinners from death. They do not understand that the bloodied man will in short time rise from the grave in victory over death. Do you know why Jesus died? Have you returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls? As you view in your mind's eye the suffering of the Savior, do you see that He's physically bearing the punishment of your sin? Do you see that He's suffering as the Lamb of God to heal your wayward soul? We have a world filled with sinful people. We are among them. But we have a world of straying sheep who are filled with anger, who are depressed and anxious and controlling and addicted and self-centered and small and confused and sensual and lost. Jesus Christ is the shepherd of our souls. And He, through His death, brings us to God the Father, our Good Shepherd. And that is what we remember here as we gather around this table today. How much has been done for us. And if you have come to a place of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you have called upon Him unto salvation. And you have identified with Him in believer's baptism to say that this is, in fact is what He has done in your soul. Then we invite you to share in this table with us together today.